strange sight. Now, we know a lot has happened. We know that the people of Israel had been oppressed for about 400 years, and they had finally hit their point of absolute despair. And in the midst of their despair, we know that they've cried out for help. They cried out intently that they had groans in their spirit, and they moaned because of the oppression of their oppressors. And so it was then that God heard, but... We know that it was long before they ever cried for help that God had already planted the seeds and was in the process of raising up a deliverer, a solution to their problem. Long before they cried for help, God was already at work fixing their problem. That's an interesting illustration for us. Uh, if you go to Psalm 139, you'll see an interesting um uh, intercha- interchange between God and, and David, the, uh, the king. Um, let's see if I can show it to you just a little bit of it. I don't want to go through the whole thing. But he goes on to say, For you created my inmost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So keep that in the back burner, and then we'll go to, to Jeremiah chapter 1, where Jeremiah says in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, which is another word, the fancy word is consecrated you. I, I, I consecrated you, I set you apart while you were still in the womb. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. So I had a purpose for you before you even took your first breath. So what that tells us is, is that God is very much at work in the hearts of people, even before they're born into the world, to help alleviate the suffering of those who are going to cry out for help. This is all very important because we have to be a people who think to ourselves all the time. If I have a problem, is it possible that God already knows the solution to my problem? Of course it is. It's very possible. If, if I'm in a point of desperation or if I'm going to be in a desperation, does that mean that God is already aware of that before I'm aware of it? Absolutely. So that really helps to confirm to us and our faith that that I'm never too far away from God. I, I can never really surprise him with, with what I do or what I say or what I in, 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 uh, engage in. And that, that means that no matter how ugly my life can be, he is privy to that information. He knows what I'm going through and he goes through it with me. This is important stuff. Because there are days coming, if you're not at at one of those points right now, there's a day coming when you're going to be so desperate and so overwhelmed that you can't get out of bed in the morning, that you don't know what decisions to make, you don't know how what bills to pay or which child to feed. And, And when that happens, you should keep in mind, God already knows your suffering. He already knows your problem, and he's already at work bringing a deliverer into your life. That's going to have the solution to your problem. This is very, very important. I can't stress that enough. So when we go back to uh, Exodus chapter 3, we know that Moses is the answer to the problem. 
God has already raised up a deliverer in Moses. We, we talked about his, his birth and, and his salvation in the Longerberger basket, right? Floating down the Nile. We, we heard about that. We know that. God is still at work raising him up and training him and molding him and shaping him into the answer that Israel needs. And God's timing is always perfect. We often say he's seldom early, but he's never late. He's never late. He always knows what you need. So when Moses was out in the desert, one thing that stands out implicitly is the fact when Moses witnessed the, 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 the abuse of those, Egypt, of those Hebrew men from the hands of the Egyptians, and when he killed the Egyptian soldier and he fled into Midian, he was in a moment of desperation himself. And in his moment of desperation, God raised up a deliverer for him. His name was Jethro. Jethro just so happened to have a beautiful daughter who he would find to be very attractive. And he would hook up with this young lady and they would be get married and they would have children of their own. And, and God raised up Jethro for for Moses, Moses or Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, in a, in a way was a deliverer for Moses spiritually and, and, and physically. God was at work doing this to get him to where he needed to be so that he could be a deliverer for others. So, so keep in mind that the oppression is intense. The people have been crying out for a long period of time, and Moses is in the development stage to become the deliverer for, for Israel that they have been crying out for. And so when he's out doing his duties of watching the sheep, he sees a bush on fire, and he literally, if you look at the Hebrew, he's, looking, he's walking past the, the bush. This bush on fire is not a miracle. It happens a lot. In the desert. The rarity is that there's a bush in the desert. But the fact that it was burning did not catch his attention. He must not have been impressed with that for whatever reason. But the scriptures say that when he walked past it, it dawned on him that that burning bush was not being consumed. That's what got his attention. So literally, if you were to visualize this, he walks past the bush saying, oh, well, that's cool. And then after he takes a few steps, he says, wait a minute, there's something odd about this. And he turns around and he gets a closer look at it. He investigates it. And so here's the thing. When God is out doing his, his work and he's performing his miracles and he's, he's, he's raising up his deliverers and he's answering people's problems, a lot of times you're going to be so busy that you're going to walk right past it and not give it a second look. And if that's the case, you're going to miss your miracle. You're going to miss your deliverance. But when you pause to think about what you just saw and what you just experienced, and when you turn around and get a second look, that's when God speaks. In other words, sometimes we have to work for it a little bit. Sometimes he's there even when we're clueless. Sometimes his answer to our problem is there, but, but we're clueless. Because we're so busy doing everything in the world that we do, 
trying to please everybody that we're trying to please that we can't take five seconds for ourselves to look around us at what God is up to. In verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, this is his second glance, God called to him from within the bush. Now, the, the, the structure that I want to follow today, I want to look at three different points to being a deliverer, to deliverance. The three points I want us to look at first is this, calling. To be a deliverer or to have a deliverer, there has to be a calling upon their life. The second thing is there has to be an equipping or an anointing that, that couples with that particular calling. And third, there has to be a sending. So we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to look at calling, anointing, and sending as it is illustrated in this particular chapter. When God saw him go over to look at the bush, God called to him. And there's basically two different Hebrew words that illustrate calling. Uh, really, neither one of them really relevant to know the Hebrew pronunciation, but, and that's also because I can't pronounce it. But, but the fact is, is that when someone is called in the scripture, that means that they are proclaimed, that they are named, or that they are commissioned. That they're being, um, that their attention is being grasped by the person calling upon them. Let me give you a quick illustration. Uh, 27 years ago, I was selling shoes at Red Wing Shoe Store in Belleville, Illinois, with a bunch of folks that were not religious any bit whatsoever. And the guy that worked in the shoe repair in the back, who he, we worked him to death, um, but uh, one day he was saying to me, so why are you going to be a preacher? And I said, well, because I've been called to it. And he says, called to it. Uh, does that mean that God actually called you on the telephone? And he, had, he wasn't laughing. He had a straight face. And I said, well, kind of, sort of, yes. But God doesn't use a telephone. He uses your heart. And God somehow uh, puts a message in your heart that you know has to be from him. It couldn't come from any other source. It has to be from God. And so basically that call is persistent until you recognize that it's God and you recognize it's his message and he's trying to get your attention. That's basically what was happening at the burning bush. God was trying to get his attention, to call his attention to the fact not of the fire, but of the God who's in the fire. And so Moses drew attention to that, and he said, here am I, or in our uh, English, here I am. And God said, do not come any closer because this is holy ground. You have to take your sandals off. I looked all over for the, the chorus, holy ground, couldn't find it to, on iTunes at all, so missed an opportunity there. But it's such a great song. But, but holy ground, and, and this is also something very cool to me. The implication that, that God is speaking to Moses and saying, this ground that you stand on right at this moment is holy ground implies that all of the ground that you walk on other than this moment and this day and this place has been unholy ground. In other words, this ground right here is significantly different than any ground you have ever walked upon in your life. 
What makes it significant is the fact of God's involvement in that place, that location at that time. And when God's involved in a particular location, place, and time, or person, then he has a dramatic effect, a changing agent upon that location as well as that person, place, or time. And so so what Moses has to understand is this location is like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. And as I ponder that, God has always revealed this to me in every single church I've ever been in. This ground in this sanctuary is holy ground. It is set apart and consecrated for different purposes than you have ever seen or heard or experienced in your life. This ground right here in which we walk on and which we run on and play on and pray on, this ground is significantly special. And you have never seen or heard anything like it in all the world just like it is right here. And, and, and the reason that's important is because some of you come every week and it's never dawned on you that this place, this location is holy. But that's exactly what God's trying to communicate to us. This place is holy. When you pray at home, it's different from when you pray right here in church in this holy place. When you take communion in the, in the wilderness at camp, it's different from when you take communion here. When you take play, uh, communion in another church, it's different from when you take it here. This ground is holy, but it's special. It's unique and it's different. So you are privy to this every day that you enter into these doors. But I don't know that you necessarily equate that. God has conditioned this place for such a time as this, for an encounter with us. And he's saying, Moses, when you're here, you should take your shoes off because this is holy place. You should treat it differently. Look at it differently. He says, I am the God of your father. He has to prove himself, of course, to Moses because this is new for Moses. He's never had a burning bush experience before. So you have to approach it differently with a little bit of a delicate uh, facade, a little bit of uh, tenderness. It says that amid, at this, when he heard this and God identified himself, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now let me tell you this. Years ago, I was in a, in a seminary class where we were asked the question, Actually, we had to write it. We had to do an essay and write about it before we were accepted to the seminary. And then we talked about it later once we got there. The question was, explain your calling. And so I had to write out in great detail how I was called into ministry. And then the school uh, would determine if I was adequately called, sufficiently called, before they would accept me into the school. And then while we were in class, we would talk about these various things. So it meant so much to me to hear other people's stories of how they were called into ministry and then to parallel it with my own story. And I saw a lot of commonality. And one of the critical commonalities was fear. Every one of us were terrified when we realized what God was doing, that God was speaking to us, and that God had a commission for us. We were overwhelmed with, with just grief and, and just scared to death. I don't know how better to put it. 
It was such a, a scary thing to ponder. I was an introvert. I didn't like people. I didn't like being around people. I certainly was no leader. And if you were to say, okay, get in front of them, uh, no, we're going to have a major breakdown at that point. I don't do that kind of stuff. I was an alcoholic at the time. I liked my bottle at the time. And God's calling me to be a preacher? That means either I continue with this and embrace it like I did, or I have to get rid of it. And, and my language was certainly not church-worthy. Some of you wouldn't bat a brow of, if I were to use some of that the language, because you're used to it. But most people in church would have a problem with it. I was terrified. I didn't know how I would provide for myself. I didn't know how I would do certain things. I was terrified. And then when I became a faculty member at the licensed preschool in the Methodist church, I would ask each of the students that were coming to me to learn about evangelism, I would, I would make them write out an essay, tell me about your calling. And I remember one particular time, this, this woman who felt that she was called into ministry, uh, her calling was not a calling at all. Um, it was basically her saying this, I am a social justice advocate. And there are a lot of hurting people in this world. They need an advocate. And so that's why I decided to become a pastor, so I can be an advocate for social justice purposes. And I thought, you're in the wrong place, sister. This is just not the place for you. But of course, I couldn't do that because that wasn't my authority. But this happened time after time. I would hear people and they would say, they would never use the word, I've been called they would just say, I chose, I wanted, I decided. Now, there's a reason why three out of five pastors quit being pastors after 10 years. 60% dropout rate. I think it's simply because they haven't been called to what they're doing. Now, understand that calling goes along with what it says in Psalm 139 and also what it says in Jeremiah 1 and also uh, Ezekiel, when Ezekiel felt his calling in chapter 5, I believe it was, um, and so many other references. A calling is something that comes from God and it's placed within us before we even know what we're about, before we know who we are. And God puts that in us, and then our job is to go through the training process and the, the experience process, the living process, so that when God formalizes that calling and initiates it, and basically, well, here's the thing. You know, if you're watching 007, he goes around his normal life until he gets that phone call. Or in Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise would say, here's your assignment. If you care to choose it, this message will self-destruct in three minutes. When, when, when that calling is formalized, that's when you know it's time to step up to the plate. But until then, you just go about your normal life, do what you're doing, and, and, and just trust that God is getting you to the place so that when you get that calling, you're ready to go. I don't know if that makes sense. But not only does God call us, he also has to equip us. Now, on the radio a, a month ago, two months ago or something, there was an interesting uh, sermon qu uh, clip that they would play. And it would say something like this. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. 
So he doesn't go looking for people with the right gifts and graces and talents and education and financial stability and experiences and then says, that's a good candidate. I'm going to call them into ministry. He calls the ones who are willing, the ones who have already been set apart, and then he equips them and he teaches them and he molds them and shapes them into the person he called them to be. The second component of this is that um, is the equipping part. But this is also interesting. It says in verse, I think it's verse 8, I can't read it. It says, this, these are the words of God. Remember, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard their crying, and I'm concerned about their suffering. But this is what God says. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. God himself is coming down from heaven, down to earth, to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that he showed Abraham when he was marching through the desert and then he passed as Israel and went all the way down to Egypt and that's what began their slavery bondage You know, over a period of several hundred years. But Abraham saw the land, but he wasn't, it wasn't time to possess it yet. So all of this time has elapsed, and now God is saying, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and put them back in the land that I originally showed Abram. Now, in verse 9, it says, Now the cry of Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now I'm sending you. So here's the, here's the part that's interesting. God is raising up a deliverer in Moses, but God has already got off of his throne and he is on his way down to earth where he's going to do the work. If God is going to do the work, then why does he need Moses at all? Because one, nobody can see the face of God and live because of our unholiness, our unrighteousness. And secondly, because in God's divine sovereignty, that's the way he chose. I'm not going to get all theological on you. This, this is God's option. He can do whatever he wants. But God chooses to use normal people like us to accomplish his purposes. Why would he do that? I think personally to show that he can do it in anybody who's willing to let him do it. And if God's going to call any of you to any particular task, he will equip you for that task. Every one of you have the ability to teach a Sunday school class. You just might not have the desire. Every one of you has the ability to go into the mission field and bring a person to faith in Jesus Christ who doesn't already know him, but not everybody's willing. Every one of you have the ability to lead worship here. But not everybody has the desire. And on and on and on. I believe that's one of the key reasons God has done this through normal humans throughout all of time. So that today when God calls you to do something beyond yourself, that you can't say, God, you can't do it with me because I'm fill in the blank. Old, overweight, broken, poor, empty, rejected, addicted, whatever it is, God can still use you. 
But what it also tells me is this. The fact that God has come down to a particular area to do his best work, and then he's called Moses, a human, to the same locale to do the same work, it's basically saying to me, Moses, you're going to be the spokesman. You're going to be the, the, the point person. But I'm going to put myself in you. I'm going to put my spirit upon you, my anointing upon you. I'm going to do everything for you and through you for their benefit so that you can be the face of this particular deliverance. And if God's going to do that for Moses, isn't he going to do the same thing for each one of us? You know, I, I, I think about this, you know, when I first got to preach in, in Haiti and uh, you, all these pe- people speaking Creole, they don't understand a thing I'm saying. I have my interpreter and he's telling them what I say. And I'm thinking the whole time, I'm thinking, who am I that they should listen to me? Who am I that they should give me two minutes of their time? And the answer is, I am nobody apart from Christ. And whatever God had to say to them, I hope and pray that he said to them. But it wasn't about me. It was all about him. But it was so overwhelming. And it was so intense. And then when you see people actually responding to that, you have to think, Wow, this God is so amazing. It's crazy. But this anointing is is also very unique. I was looking at this uh, yesterday, 1 Samuel chapter 10, when, when the first king of Israel was called to be king, Samuel was not really very supportive of it. And then God, I think God deliberately gave them the type of king they were wanting, somebody who wasn't necessarily godly, but someone who was big and strong and muscular and made good decisions, was a good fighter. That's what the people asked for, and I think that's what he gave them, knowing that he would fail. But um, it says in chapter 10, Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it on Saul's head and he kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance. Now, the reason I use that verse is just to illustrate something. Samuel poured the oil over his head. Samuel was a human. Samuel was giving him a a physical anointing. But Samuel was making it clear, the Lord has anointed you. The Lord has given you his spiritual anointing. I just give you an oil anointing. That's kind of interesting because if you go forward and you look at Samuel or at uh, David's anointing uh, several chapters later, let me see if I can find this for you. In chapter 16, it says in verse 6 of chapter 16, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to him, don't consider the height or the appearance for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Um, so they go on and on. I can't see the actual verse now. Uh, in 16, chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he's, God says, I have chosen one of the sons to be king. Now in verse 14, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit tormented him. Um, oh, I can't even say it. somewhere in this chapter, but I'm losing my mind. In verse 13 of chapter 16, So Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. 
But that chapter illustrates that David was set apart from the womb. Remember, he's the one who wrote Psalm 139. David was set apart. He was anointed by God for this task before Samuel ever poured the oil upon his head. The reason that's important is because we have to ask this question, is every pastor anointed? Maybe physically, but not necessarily spiritually. Not everyone has been called and equipped. Is every missionary anointed? No, not necessarily. Some are just there for social justice. Is every Sunday school anointed? Not necessarily. For one thing, we don't go around anointing their heads with oil when, they're, when they rise up to be a Sunday school teacher. So this is, this is different, but anointed all the same. How can we tell the difference? Well, the main thing is change. If, if an anointed person does ministry then there should be some evidence of that ministry. People coming to faith in Jesus would be the biggest one. You can't really base it on church attendance because I could could just pay you all to be here and church attendance could be amazing. But that doesn't mean I'm anointed. That just means I'm gifted with, with finances. But anointing implies that God is doing something through that person that they couldn't do by themselves or by their own strength. Anointing is very important. The third thing is sent. And we go back to Exodus. I won't spend as much time with this. But in Exodus chapter 3, it says in verse 7, not verse 7, it says in verse 9. I tell you, I need my glasses, but I, I keep forgetting them. It says, Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God doesn't send us until we are adequately equipped. Not completely equipped, but adequately equipped. When I went to my first church, I knew very little about the Bible. I knew very little about theology. I just was not a theologian. I was not an intellectual thinker. I just couldn't really explain myself very well. And God still appointed me to a church. He had already anointed me in the fact that he consecrated me from birth and set me apart for that task, but I had never been anointed by any denomination or any church. So I questioned whether or not I had the authority or the gift or the grace or any other reason why I should be there. But God put me there. And and, and in hindsight, I can say this, because I didn't know anything but Christ crucified, that right there equipped me for the, the task ahead. The fact I understood my limitations made me dependent upon God for everything and anything. And many times I made mistakes, and many times I didn't understand what I was saying. I was just saying what I believe God wanted me to say. And, and it was enough. And God continued to do amazing things in that church. Not because of me, but because of not me. Because in my not me, he was him. And in my me, I don't need him as much. So here's what I'm trying to say from all this. I want to make it very clear that I believe personally that there are people 
all over this globe that are hurting and crying for help. They are in complete and total despair. They're overwhelmed. You just look at the suicide rates if you don't believe me. Look it up. It continues to increase. People don't have hope. They don't have peace. They don't have joy. They've never experienced love. And they're crying out. They don't necessarily believe in God at all. But they're crying out that anybody that could hear them, anybody that could help them, if they would do something to reach out to them, they would be content. And you might be able to prevent even one suicide if you just heard their cries for help. And with that said, I believe that in the midst of their cries for help, God already has raised up an answer to their problem. He's raised up a deliverer to bring them out of that. One, in Jesus Christ. That's our source of strength. But secondly, in us. He's calling us up to teach those classes and to reach out to those people and to go to those prisons and to feed those people and to go on those mission trips. God has called us to this and he's raising us up and he's in the process of equipping us and anointing us and giving us all the gifts and graces we need to accomplish the purpose. I believe that. And so he is going to send us And when we're ready, we're going to go to that. But we have to be willing because he's not going to force his agenda on anybody. You know, I heard it said years ago that when Jesus got to heaven, you know, the angels were all celebrating. He made it back. Thank you for dying on the cross and raising from the dead. We're so happy to have you here. But what's going to happen with the gospel now that you're with us? And he says, I've entrusted it to my 11 disciples. And the angel said, you did what? Those liars, those sinners, those wimpy men, you've entrusted the whole future of the gospel to those 11 broken men? And Jesus said with confidence, yes, I have faith in them. Either he was extremely, extremely intuitive or just not real bright. But those men took the gospel and they did exactly what Jesus had hoped they would. And now I believe we're in a generation where he's waiting for us to do the things he's equipped us to do, that he's called us to do, and he's waiting to send us when we willingly accept that calling, we answer the phone, and we make our our, our public profession known, I will go wherever you send me. I will do whatever you ask me to do, and I will be the person you want me to be because I have heard the cries of the people. I have seen their suffering and their misery, and I am going to do whatever I can to help. And so, Lord, I ask that you will send me and equip me, and I pray that together we can make a difference in this world because if I don't, who else will? Let's pray. Gracious Father, please move in our hearts. Help us to become cognizant of the purpose in which you have birthed us into this world. Help us to understand the anointing that is already upon us and the anointing that is still yet to come. And help us, Lord, not to be afraid, fearful of of disappointing you, but not afraid of what the world has to offer or the devil that we have to oppose. And help us, Father, to be completely humbled, knowing that you're going to do this mighty work in us and through us for the sake of this dying world. Lord, our only responsibility is to say, here I am, send me. I pray that you will move in all of us. We don't know what that future holds. We don't know what you're trying to tell us. We don't know what 